this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track, but there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. Well, I think you're in for a special treat today because it is our 250th episode of Built to Sell Radio. We have been doing this for five years, 250 episodes, almost a million downloads of the show. So first of all, thank you for listening. You've made this possible. You give us the energy to continue, and we're so excited to bring you the next 250 episodes. But before we do that, we wanted to kind of mark this 250th episode, and I wanted to introduce you to someone who works behind the scenes on Built to Sell Radio. Her name is Sean, and she is our producer. So what's a producer? A producer is the person largely responsible for winning new guests, convincing guests to come on the show. And it's a tough job. Nobody wants to talk about their exit. Everybody signs a confidentiality agreement. And so Sean has a very tough job, but through grace and tenacity and grit, she gets it done every week. And now 250 episodes later, Sean came to me and said, what if I did a bit of a retrospective? You know, as the producer of the show, I've got a bit of a unique sort of perspective on the best episodes, which ones are resonate most with our audience, which ones get the most social media coverage, et cetera. And she said, I'd like to put together a little bit of a retrospective and go back through all 250 episodes and pick the ones that resonated the most, got the most downloads, and got the most chatter on social. And so I want to introduce you now to Sean, who's going to take you through her insights from 250 episodes of Built to Sell Radio. Take it away, Sean. Hi there. My name is Sean McDonald, and I've been the producer for Built to Sell Radio for the last two years. What exactly does a podcast producer do? I guess you could say I'm the wrangler. I work with John to find potential guests, help them get connected for interviews, coordinate with our sound editor so the interviews are as polished as possible, and make sure all the pieces are ready to be posted for you every week. In my work as a show's producer, I've spoken with hundreds of entrepreneurs across the world. Sometimes when a pitch from a recognizable name brand like Barefoot Wines or an icon like Chris Craft shows up in my inbox, I can't believe I get to talk with these incredibly experienced and insightful people. I thought it might be fun to do something special to mark our 250th episode. So I pitched John on the idea of doing a retrospective of sorts. I wanted to look at the entire arc of content we've created and draw out some recurring themes. I looked at the download reports from our most popular episodes, analyzed which episodes created the most buzz on social media, and also peppered in some of my own opinion on which stories are the most insightful. It might have been a while since you've heard some of these stories, 
And while we're only sharing excerpts here, if you want the full interview, there will be links to each one in the show notes at builttosell.com. So let's get started. One of the first things that struck me about the successful entrepreneurs we've interviewed is how good they become at saying no. In episode 173, Mitch Durfee learned the hard way that he needed to start saying no. His company, Grunts Move Junk, had become a one-stop shop for moving, painting, landscaping, snow removal, construction, and renovation. His team had never been busier, but their cash flow was suffering. And then disaster struck. Here's Mitch to tell you the story. Well, we were building, we were building a brewery, um, a, a new event space for a brewery. And, and the project, just, you know, they kept adding on new sections, but we weren't really staying on top of like, okay, hey, we didn't do a change order because it was like, in the beginning, it was an hourly contract. We would just do the work with what they needed. And when they added a new project on, I guess, you know, their estimate and their minds were, okay, well, we can just keep adding on these projects, but it's not going to cost us more. And then something fell through on finances on, on their side, um, to the best of my knowledge. And at that point in time, we, you know, we realized that, okay, well, we're never going to get paid unless we, we fund this and finish it. Otherwise it's going to be an empty building with, you know, with a, it's all built out, but no, you know, the, the tile's not done. The walls aren't painted. The, the lights aren't hung. So we kind of took it on ourselves to be like, okay, well, at this point in time, we're either both going to lose or, and, and we're going to look like the bad person that doesn't finish the project. So it was kind of like this balance where it's like, okay, we can fund it until it's done. If it's done, then we can figure out a payment plan. So we kept going forward and we kept asking for, we reduced what we were asking for, for the payments. And to a point where we got almost a hundred thousand dollars in debt and it got to a point, And I remember it was in the middle of December when it's like, okay, we just can't do this anymore. Like the walls are up, the lights are on, the floor's done. We worked you know, straight through the night to try to finish these projects so that they could have these big events at the end of the year, you know, the New Year's Eve event, the Christmas holiday parties and all these things so that we could hopefully start getting some payments from the income that would come in. And then they decided that they were not gonna pay us and had absolutely no intention of paying us. The first time I spoke to Mitch, he told me an amazing story about driving all night in a snowstorm, trying to get all of his snowplow contracts fulfilled, and listening to the audiobook of Built to Sell over and over. His key takeaway was learning to say no. You know, that January, I think we made like $20,000. Like we, I mean, we cut back hard. It's like, wow, that was, that was painful. But by April, we were back over a hundred thousand. Um, you know, we did a hundred thousand that year or that month. And then it was like, you know, 140,000 then 160,000. It's like, because we just focused on the things and it's like, like we were even, we were doing even bigger months now that we got rid of these other distractions because when people came in, they knew what they were doing and we weren't having to cross train people and it's, and, and people became experts in their field and we could provide more value to our customers because we weren't running around to try to take on other jobs. It's like every day, here's the system. And it just it simplified everything. So we ended up crossing the million dollars again that year. Mitch would go on to overhaul his business and only focus on what they do best, moving. Shortly thereafter, he was able to sell his business, a company that had previously been unsellable for about two times EBITDA. On the other hand, we've had a number of entrepreneurs who went in with a game plan to specialize from the start. Rob Daly and Paul Duvall 
built their DevOps company, Celligent, around the Amazon Web Services, or AWS, platform. Even though there were a number of options out there, and they had customers who asked for services outside of AWS, Rob and Paul stuck with their plan. Have a listen as they talk about what specializing meant for their business and how they dealt with customers who thought they wanted something other than AWS. Talk about uh, the the fact that as after a little bit of time, the idea that you were specialized actually started to accelerate your growth. Because a lot of people are listening to that and going, you know, like I could never do that, right? I, you know, I offer a bunch of different services. Uh, you know, there's no way yep. that I could drop all of them to specialize in one. So the misconception, yeah, the misconception is that they want to be customer centric, right? So the customer is asking us to do this thing. But the way I've looked at this and the way we ultimately looked at this as a company is that if you get really good in something, if you're, you know, one of the best, if not the best in that thing, and in our case, we invested highly in that, both in the area of DevOps, continuous delivery and AWS, like our entire company is 100% certified on AWS, for example. And by investing in that, when we say no, we're doing it in the customer's best interest. Because if, you know, if they say they want to use some other cloud provider or, or another way of doing things, in, in my mind, we're actually serving their best interests. We're, we're, we are being customer centric because we're making sure that we're uh, the best at what we're providing. You know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, maybe a general practitioner saying that they could do, you know, heart surgery and saying, well, the customers, you know, the, the patient said they wanted heart surgery, so I think <laughs> I would do it, right? Um, so we've, we've, we made it a point to say, no, we're not going to do something unless we're the best at providing that capability that, uh, to you. I'll, I'll add to this one. I think, um, you know, something that I've learned even since our first company was that it really helps to have what I call, and it's a misnomer, I call it a leachable partner. And when you're a little dinky services firm with great people, but you don't have any exposure, no one knows who you are, they don't see you, uh, finding good engagements is crucial. By actually becoming very good with something that your own people believe in, in this case it was AWS, and committing to them, you can just see the the difference, right? They're a multi-billion dollar company with all kinds of reach, huge sales channel. And if you can do good for their customers and them, then the business just flows and it comes very, very naturally. And I think that that also goes very well with you need to specialize. Rob and Paul worked their specialization all the way to a $25 million sale. When I'm talking to new guests, they always wanna know what kinds of questions John will be asking. I usually say that we're pretty flexible and John will take the interview in the direction that's most interesting. But in every episode, one question is going to come out one way or the other. What finally made you decide to sell? In every case, the answer is different. Some of our guests talk about personal factors prompting or pushing them to sell their business, like a health scare or a life change or just the desire to try something else. And external factors that were pulling them into a sale, like an unsolicited offer or a change in the market. In an episode from earlier this year, Arvid Call and Danielle Simpson described what pushed them to want to sell their software as a service company for international teachers called Feedback Panda. The platform was earning them a tidy little sum in monthly recurring revenue, and Arvid, as the lead programmer, had done some amazing work to automate the company and reduce the load on customer service reps. 
But ultimately, when there was a problem, it was Arvid's phone that rang. I can certainly see why it might have been tempting to keep going with Feedback Panda and enjoy the revenue it was earning. However, Arvid and Danielle decided to sell to a private equity group and are now enjoying their freedom. Another guest who experienced significant push factors was Jim Remzik. Jim was one of my earliest guests, and his software company, Adorable, had just sold. I thought his story had a unique twist to it. Jim was still working with the acquired company, which isn't uncommon among the people I talked to. What did catch my attention, though, was how much happier he said he was since selling his company. Here's Jim talking about the moment he realized it was time to sell. I think this is helpful context for, for me to, to understand what triggered you to want to sell because you, you did stabilize the business, uh, got it back up to $1.8 in revenue and 11 employees. What triggered you to want to sell it? Uh, I did have a, a health scare. I had a, uh, you know, I, I had a bad headache. I was, uh, at a conference in Denver and I had been at altitude before and, and it didn't, uh, uh, it didn't agree with me. Um, so I, I want to, uh, go in to try to get some altitude relief at a, uh, hydration bar. And they took my blood pressure and they said 239 over 139 is, is, too high. Um, <laughs> Just a bit too high. <laughs> yeah. And so I uh, wow. went and sp- spent the, the rest of the day at the hospital. They ran a bunch of tests, didn't really find anything. Came back home and, you know, got put on some blood pressure medication and uh, everything's fine now. Um, but it, that was sort of a wake up call for me. Uh, and we, you know, it took another uh, month and a half before I, I, you know, I was down in Austin and decided that, um, uh, that something needed to change. And so I had, uh, a couple of phone calls. I called out to three people who run similar shops and said, you know, let, let's talk honestly about what it would look like to, to merge forces. So something needed to change. Let me, let me try to dig into that a little bit more. So you obviously have this health scare, um, did you ever find out? Was it related to the altitude, or did you ever find out what the cause was? I did not find out what the cause was, and in fact, when I got back to uh, here to Madison, Wisconsin, um, you know, my first trip was to the to see my primary care physician, and my blood pressure was just as high here. So I don't think it was altitude related, but uh, that's what let let me let it go on as long as it did. What was? Did you link the blood pressure to the stress you were carrying from your your company? Is that what caused you to want to sell it? Um, it certainly wasn't helping. Uh, I, I don't know that it was uh, the specific cause, but uh, you know, it's it's a heavy weight to carry. You know, people's livelihoods on your shoulder uh, as the only salesperson and the you know the person bringing in business. It, it felt like it was all on my shoulders. Jim was able to find a buyer, and the sale helped him get his health under control. Of course, not all our guests had personal factors pushing them toward a sale. Sometimes entrepreneurs sell because they receive an offer they can't refuse. Another early guest of mine was Peter Fader. He's a professor at the Wharton School of Business, which sounded pretty impressive to me. And then his story got even more tantalizing when he told me that Nike had spontaneously offered to buy his company. Peter had built Zodiac, a consumer intelligence company that tracked all kinds of data to help retailers predict buying behavior. 
His models and software went way deeper than telling e-commerce giants that people with a certain zip code were more likely to buy a blender than the people in the next neighborhood over. And data like this has international brands salivating. That's when Nike, who was already a customer of Feeders, came knocking with an offer. Again, we had a very good plan in place. We had a really nice pipeline of prospects that we just needed, just a little bit more boots on the ground to go after them. And then one of our clients, this 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 company called Nike, uh, you know, we had done a couple of projects with them, and just and they saw the value of the models, and they said we want it all. Uh, and we said, oh, that's great. We'll give you all the bandwidth you want, Nike. They said, no, 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 we want it all. <laughs> Not being an entrepreneur myself, I always thought the key to business was coming up with a million dollar idea. But as I've gotten to know our guests, I've come to learn even the simplest ideas can work. For example, take a listen to our recent episode with Griffin Thal. He and a buddy were surfing in Costa Rica when they came across a vendor selling waxed and beaded bracelets on the beach. They decided to buy a few as gifts for friends and a few more they thought they could sell when they got back to the US. I'll let Griffin tell you the rest. As much as we've scaled the business, we've never really negotiated our rates with Jorge. Um, we've never tried to penny pinch him. We've never tried to maximize um, or risk the relationship. Um, it's been very uh, trustworthy. Um, it's been very um, you know, consistent. And I think both of us feel that we need each other to succeed. Are you still getting the bracelets from the same guy? Oh, yeah. Jorge and Joaquin, they wow. run the operation. They have almost 1,000 employees now, hand-making every period of bracelet. Okay, hold on a second. That's just the craziest story. So you're taking a guy that's selling bracelets on the beach. Ten years later, he's running a thousand person organization. Exactly. That's insane. It's insane. <laughs> I mean, how, how do you teach somebody to like literally like run a thousand person company? That's like how, like, like uh, did I, you train him? You must. Honestly, I, I think I think it was just that was part of the luck that crossed our path is that we both. Realized there was an opportunity to be had, and we both ran with it. And you know, this was mine and Paul's first job out of college. We've never used our resume. We've never raised funding. We've never done anything like this. So um, it was it was a big learning curve. And I think they had the same learning curve, you know, in a third world country to be able to scale a business. So to say that we taught them how to grow their business is is completely not true. You know, they did that on their own. So we run two separate businesses, um, and uh, it's it's been it's been extremely successful unbelievable. You can bet I told that story to a lot of my friends even before the episode was live. By the time Griffin and Paul sold Paravita bracelets to Vera Bradley, they were doing $68 million in revenue and sold for $75 million. The numbers make me shake my head every time I think about it, especially when you consider where the business started. Over the years, most of our guests have a combination of both book and street smarts, and nobody illustrates that combo better than David Bach. David has exited not one, not two, but three $100 million companies. You're probably not surprised to hear he's a Harvard-educated scientist and physician, but what was even more surprising to me is the process he uses to find his $100 million ideas. So what I did is I, I went on, um, you know, what's now been dubbed a listening tour. And I started calling people I knew in the healthcare world. And here's the question I asked them. And these were like leaders in healthcare. I said, tell me a business problem, which is going to be really important to you a year from now that you haven't start, started to worry about, right? Something which is going to be a huge problem for you in a year that you haven't started to worry about. 
And, you know, and, and I got on the phone with CEOs of people, you know, CEOs of some companies, and they referred me to their other friends. And I'll tell you something, people love this question. I got to talk to the CEOs of some Fortune 100 companies. And John, they loved it because, you know, these CEOs are thinking quarter by quarter. And it was the first time anybody made them think kind of down the future. And so I would schedule, you know, half an hour with people. I would get an hour and a half. And I did 150 of these interviews. And it was just all asking that same question. And as they went through it and they started to speculate, themes came out and there were 35 ideas. And they were all ideas like, here's a problem which is getting worse, which is going to be a huge issue for these people. They don't have a solution. Can I solve it? And then I was just like, can I come up with a business plan that I have unique value for? And out of those 35 ideas, then I went through with my forum group and we sort of systematically checked them off against the criteria. And we came up with two ideas, or I did. And one was for my second, one was for my third company, um, you know, Leprechaun and Empyrean. And they both did, you know, by all measures, incredibly, incredibly well. Um, and, you know, it was, a, it was just a great thing. And I'll tell you, in doing the market research, it also set me up because by the time I went into the space, I had already talked to some potential customers. So I had my pipeline built. I talked to people in the space. And so it was very easy to construct a management team and to come out quickly with a product. And um, that's what I did for the second and third one. And then recently when I went back into the game, that's exactly what I did for this business. And you know, sure enough, just like happened with the second and third company, you know, I've now come out with a product or we have come out with a product, which is just you know, generating massive, massive consumer demand. And it's been, a, it's been a really good formula for me. It sounds so easy when he describes it. And I love the simplicity in just asking customers what they need. And each of Dr. Bach's $100 million exits illustrates it's a formula that works. Of course, not all our guests come to me with a pitch full of buzzwords and a degree from Harvard. But even in the grimy business of scrap metal, I was surprised how many great ideas there are to be had. Jean-Eric Plamondon came to us after he'd sold his scrap metal company, Prairie Metal Recycling. Serving farmers in rural Canada, the story of a scrap metal dealer may seem like an unlikely place to talk about value propositions and clever ways to differentiate yourself in a commodity market, but that's exactly what Jean-Eric did. He knew the scrap metal business can be a rat race to the bottom, where competitors outbid each other to rock bottom prices per ton of metal. To actually make money, Jean-Eric completely changed the way his business model was branded. And the results speak for themselves. You know, you've alluded to the, the lead generation system you put in place. And before this interview, I had a chance to watch the explainer video that you created, a little animated you know, two-minute video that described farm cleanup, the category. Um, and I'll put that in the show notes for people listening, uh, because I think it's a, it's a tremendous example of, of, of taking ownership of this farm cleanup category and differentiating yourself from just any other scrap metal provider. What was the effect of that explainer video on your business? It was tremendous. I mean, I, <clears throat> I can't remember if it was a seminar. I, I attended a lot of seminars and I did a lot of training and coaching over the years uh, to, to kind of keep up with these companies. And I think it was by Joseph Campbell. And he started talking about the power of stories and how, I mean, you would know this through Built to Sell, 
you know, it reads like a fable. Stories are so great for getting past the conscious and then really seeping into the subconscious. And I thought, you know, what a better way to do that if through an explainer video. And, you know, scrap metal companies are generally big, tough, and kind of gruff as you were explaining at the end of the call. So I, I had this cute little animated video that we created. And in the process of creating that, we, I started to outline what are all the top 10 pain points and objections that we come across. And if you watch the story, there's, you'll probably count 10 to 12 objections that I slowly un- break down uh, throughout that two minute video. We started to track our calls. And just to, to, to your point of the impact, the farmers that would call who watched the video versus the farmers who didn't watch the video, the ones who hadn't, it was about a 15 minute phone conversation on the initial five, point of contact. Five zero? One five. One five. 15, 15 minutes. minutes. Okay. Because it was, who are you? Are you Canadian? What do you, you know, how much are you paying? What do you mean you don't know how much you're paying? Like it was a very like adversarial type of, you know, grilling conversation. And the ones who watched the video were five minutes in length because that's just about much time it took to take down all their information. And they were just like, and their, and their biggest question was, when can you get here? John Eric's story generated a lot of buzz in our community. Listeners wanted to see his marketing video and understand how they could differentiate themselves too. Well, we feature a lot of tech and software companies on this show, I love it when great ideas come from unexpected places. The last great idea I wanna to talk to you about comes from an experience I know I've definitely had and you probably have too. You're looking for a product or service only to discover somehow it doesn't exist. You make calls, you send emails, you are literally prepared to give someone your money if they will fix your problem and no one seems to want your cash. This is exactly what happened to Stephanie Breedlove. She just wanted to pay her nanny, but none of the payroll companies she called were interested in taking on a business for a single employee. So she started her own payroll company and pretty soon Breedlove and Associates had customers across the country. And let's talk about the volume. So how big did you get the thing before you wanted to sell it? What was the, the volume that you got to? Yeah, so we were self-funded. So although we had a steady pace of growth um, for many years before acquisition, our growth was um, slower than probably would have occurred, you know, had we had outside investment. Um, and we grew at an average of about 20% a year over the course of about 18 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, some years, of course, were 60%, some years were 10%. And the volume in terms of clients, our average client lifetime was about four years per client. We used to say it was, you know, from a little bit after birth to preschool. Mm. <laughs> and um, at the time of acquisition, we had grown to about 10,000 active clients. And so what was the revenue of the company at 10,000 clients? At 10,000 clients, um, we were right at around $9 million in revenue. Stephanie Breedloves is a story, like David Box, of seeing a gap or a need in the marketplace and filling it, often to amazing results. If you listen to the rest of Stephanie's episode, you'll hear how she ultimately sold her company to Care.com for $54 million. I love to highlight business owners who built successful companies and had equally successful exits. But not every story has a happy ending, or sometimes it takes a few tries to get there. And we know it's important to share those stories with you too. One of the most moving episodes I can remember is an interview last year with Sherry Deutschman. Sherry's company, Letter Logic, was a medical billing company, which she built using principles of empathetic leadership. She regularly took her employees out for lunch, 
ran a successful profit sharing program, and in some cases, even helped her employees buy their first houses. So when it came time to sell her business, Sherry was motivated to find a buyer who would treat her employees as well as she had, and she thought she did. But within months, it became clear that the new owner wasn't as interested in the same empathetic leadership principles as Sherry had been. When I listen to this episode of Built to Sell Radio, it's impossible not to hear how hard it was for Sherry to walk away and accept that she didn't have any control over the direction the company was taking. Let's get into what happened then. So, so, so private equity company bought the business. Um, what were the changes that they made? Well, as I said, the first thing they did was get rid of the profit share. Oh, so what did, what did you do at that point when, when they said they were going to get rid of the profit sharing? Cry. Hmm. It was uh, really painful for them to change. And, and it was so frustrating because they didn't understand that that, how that profit share drove our profitability and how it made everybody worked together so closely to make us as profitable as we were. And they had paid lip service to us during the dog and pony show that they understood and they loved that idea, but they did away with it. So um, there were a lot of anguish and tears and the net results were that a lot of the employees left them. Um, I think today of the 51 employees that we um, had at that time, 12 still work for that company. Sherry's story is a tough one, but I think it illustrates the importance of considering just how important it is to you that an inquirer preserve your company's culture. On a similar vein, while I'm always excited to connect with entrepreneurs who share their secrets of how they sold their company for millions and rode off into the sunset, sometimes I find the most interesting stories come from the guests who had to make peace with the fact that a rock bottom price may be better than no price at all. One example of this is Diana House. Diana ran a yoga jewelry business, and while it became pretty successful, the direction of the company didn't align with her personal values anymore. She was ready to move on, but first she had to do something with her company, except her exit didn't go as planned. After 18 months of missed opportunities and legal errors that saw one deal collapse after another, Diana set herself a drop-dead date. If she hadn't sold her company, by the end of the month, she was walking away. But to find a buyer, after burning through so many interested parties and negotiations, she had to get creative. The first thing that I did is I actually told my operations manager that I was going to sell the business. And um, she had all the skills to run the business. And I gave her the opportunity to potentially buy the company, um, which was a huge relief because I had like been, I've had this secret for two years. And that had been like really eating me alive, not telling my staff that the company had been for sale. So just telling her felt like a massive relief. Um, but based on different circumstances, she was not able you know, to buy that company. Um, and uh, I also kind of offered that opportunity to another employee that was also not in the place to you know, buy the company. But that gave me a huge amount of relief. Um, the second thing I did was I realized that um, probably the person that would want to buy this company would be a customer and already in our community. And so what I did um, is I actually did an email to our entire list 
um, saying that I was looking to move on and that I was looking for someone to buy the company. Wow, that's that's the first I've ever heard that. <laughs> so you literally emailed your entire customer list yep. and said, I'm looking to leave. Who wants to yep. buy? That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. And so <laughs> not necessarily recommend I just want to be clear, not necessarily recommended. I <laughs> just want to be clear on that. But I want to hear more. Go. Yeah. So seriously, after doing this, I was like, man, I should have done that earlier. <laughs> Because I think as entrepreneurs, we're so terrified for people to know, and rightly so. Um, you know, I'm a very low risk individual in the DISC profile. I'm extremely high cautious, high compliant. Um, and so it was very against every cell in my body to do this. And it definitely, I would not suggest this be like the first thing that someone does. Um, but I do think there's a certain point, like if you're at the point that you're considering shutting down the company, you should definitely just put it out there to everyone because, you know, like at that point, What's it just makes downside? sense. Right. Yeah. There, I, I had no downside. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I put it out there. I think I had 60 people reach out to me. From there, Diana was able to find one buyer who closed the deal in just 48 hours. The sale price was a rock bottom multiple that wasn't the payday Diana might have dreamed of, but it got her what she wanted, an exit. Still, most of our guests have happy stories to tell, and a few others have offered some truly great tips and tricks when it comes to negotiating the sale of your company. One of my favorite episodes, chock full of negotiating hacks, was with Gary Miller. Miller sold his consultancy to IBM for 11 times EBITDA, but IBM's first offer was only around three times EBITDA. And while most would have walked away after a lowball offer or pounded the table and demanded more money, Gary took an altogether different approach. Got it. Makes sense. So how do, so where does it go from there? I mean, in your head, you're thinking eight, they're thinking three. Did you propose a counter offer? Um, uh, no, I just asked them to revisit the issues and, and relook at the quality of the company, the bench strength of the company, uh, our pipeline of business and who our clients were and see if they may have heard on the side of, of, of a low, low offer there. You are the diplomat of choice, man. I think you should be you should be negotiating world peace. <laughs> well, you're most kind, but I never, I I never ever wanted to take advantage of someone else's uh, uninformity or ignorance, etc. They were just the, the deal team on the IBM side just wasn't quite as sophisticated um, as. You would think it was, but we were a small, we're a small company compared to IBM. Uh, we were then, and you know. Uh, Do you think you had the, the B team? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we were Got a small it. company. They didn't put their, they didn't have the, the CFO wasn't looking over this acquisition. Uh, the IBM CFO wasn't. I mean, they, we were several layers below uh, the C-suite. We were at the Got division it. level. Okay, that's helpful for sure. So, so what next? They they came back to you, presumably, uh, seeming like negotiating with themselves here. But they came back to you with another offer. What was the the next offer they, in terms they of did. They, multiple? Uh, they came back and said, "Okay, we'll we'll make a stock purchase, and uh, we'll give you eight and a half times EBITDA." And uh, I, I went so wait a minute, Gary. They go from they go from three to eight and a half without yes. That's yes. incredible. They did, and. Uh, and I said, I really appreciate that. I need to visit with the other partners and uh, we'll be back to you. Um, and uh, so we came back to them, I guess, 
three, two or three days later, et cetera. And, um, you know, here's what we have in mind. Um, why don't you just give us uh, 1.5 times our annual revenue? We won't have to worry about anything on that. We'll make it a stock sale, et cetera. And we wound up wound up agreeing on 1.2. And I went back with a higher price that I knew we would never get. But they had to win uh, on this last round of negotiation since they had come up so much from their low offer. And I wanted, to give, them, I want, I wanted to give them an opportunity to, to say, look, they wanted 1.5. We've agreed to 1.2. We've got a good deal here. Let's go. And that's the way it turned out. And what did 1-2 equate to as a multiple of your EBITDA? Uh, let's see here. Almost almost 11 times EBITDA. Wow. Starting at 3, getting all the way to 11. I find that fascinating. I find it fascinating that you didn't have to spend months with spreadsheets and projections. and I mean, it, literally, you, you, you went back and had them reevaluate the company? I laugh when I picture Gary politely telling the IBM team that they could do better. If there was ever a negotiation, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for it's Gary's. To go from three to 11 times EBITDA without months of haggling with a giant like IBM is just incredible. Another guest who had an ingenious way to ensure the successful sale of his business is Adam Oxstein. We featured the sale of Stratex, Adam's hospitality payroll management company, earlier this year, just as the world was coming to grips with the economic realities of the coronavirus pandemic. When I'm talking to potential guests, I always ask them if there's an element of their sale that they think would be most interesting for listeners. I've heard a lot of different answers, ranging from the way they reorganized the company and its processes so it didn't rely on the owner anymore, or what they did when the sale fell through. Lots of people admit that they went into their business with an intention to sell it one day, but Adam's tactic for making sure that sale actually happened is unique. When Adam talked to Toast, a point-of-sale supplier, about an acquisition, they weren't really interested, but they agreed to a partnership where they white-labeled his software. But Adam's genius move was including a purchase option clause with a time limit inside his partnership agreement with Toast. Essentially, if Toast decided to buy Stratex within a certain amount of time, they would do so at a pre-negotiated rate based on the performance of both companies. If they decided not to exercise the clause, then Adam was free to go about finding another buyer when the option expired. So we actually pre-negotiated the purchase price range at the, begin at the outset of the partnership. And the reason why I was comfortable doing it is because I really felt I love the culture of their company. I loved what they were doing in the space. They're the fastest growing company in the space. And I felt that if I could provide the perfect rocket fuel for my baby, this would be the perfect exit that I, I would know that it would have lost lasting legacy, be part of the Toast ecosystem, was a place that I wasn't selling out to a competitor. I wasn't just selling out to sell out. I was taking what we built and what they were building and making a really, really cool product. I've talked to a lot of people who planned ahead for a sale by making sure their books were in order or who built systems so the business would be less dependent on them. But in all 250 episodes of Built to Sell Radio, I'm pretty sure this is the first time I've had an owner 
plan for an acquisition by making it part of a partnership agreement. Thanks to his ability to plan ahead, Adam was able to exit right before COVID hit, which was fortunate timing for a company so tied to the restaurant industry. So there you have it. Those are some of the stories, themes, and personalities that have stood out to me the most over the last 250 interviews. I'm incredibly appreciative of every single guest who has offered up their time and their valuable insight into what it takes to build a sellable business. Even those guests who didn't ride off happily into the sunset had great lessons to share. I also want to thank John for letting me have the microphone today. It's been fun preparing this episode and getting a chance to spend some time with you. We've got more amazing episodes coming to you through the rest of this year and some big announcements. I'm looking forward to bringing you the next 250 shows. Speaking of the next 250, I'm always on the lookout for interesting stories about company exits. If you've got a good idea for a show, just drop me a line at podcast at valuebuildersystem.com. Finally, a great big thank you to you for listening. John will be back next week with another episode of Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.